class kids. So, I don't know. I got to get me a big hat. And a southern accent. Yeah, I was wondering if Lisa was up there to interpret because I was getting some of that. If you're visiting us, um, thanks for putting up with our antics up here. We love people and uh, we're here to encounter the Lord Jesus. And I hope that in your visit today that you sense something of the presence of the King who loves you and cares for you, as do we. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. So um, I'm uh, Terry, and um, before we get into the message, I always like to start with Proverbs. Proverbs. So I picked a a verse out of chapter 8, because today's the 8th, okay? And I chose verse 8. All the words of wisdom's mouth are just. None of them is crooked or perverse. Okay, so today we're back into the series that I was on before the Easter season came on uh, security in troubled times. And we've so far in this series talked about security, eternal security, and we've talked about security in your home, we've talked about security in the church, we've talked about security and truth. And uh, for the next couple of weeks, which we will wrap up this series, I want to talk to you about um, security in our times, in times of terrorism. And today I'm going to talk to you about Abraham's other son, okay? And um, last week we were here to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, by the way, I I just want to thank you, church, for being so hospitable. You did a great job. We had a little under 400 people over the weekend here, and uh, many people on Sunday morning gave their heart to the Lord, and uh, it was just good to see the Spirit moving in people's hearts. By the way, if that was you, if you have in some time in the last or recent or in the past, made a decision to follow Christ, and you're now trying to get your sea legs, so to speak, we want to help you with that. And um, there are people here who could pray with you or coach you, and we encourage you to get involved in relationships. And you can do that in the men's Bible studies, you can do it in the women's Bible studies, or serving somewhere, or just coming up and get to know us at the coffee, in the coffee and cookie room right after church. So I encourage you to do that. Um, anyway, so last week, big deal for us, um, Easter. It's just a really, really big deal. And um, at the, at, you know, thinking about this last week, there are a lot of people who tour the Holy Land. Maybe some of you have been there. Um, last week on Easter, there were probably people in Jerusalem visiting some of the holy sites. And there are two possible sites that archaeologists would say are the, the, the place where Jesus' tomb was. Um, um, one's called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and another one is called the Garden Tomb. And I kind of tilt towards believing it's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre for different nerdy reasons. But there was something pretty cool that happened there in October of 2016. Um, the, the burial site that was believed to be used for Jesus was uncovered for the first time since the year 1555. There's, now, I'll just leave this up for a minute, if you would. This is kind of a close-up of what they found. They, they, this was a, a, a tomb that... Um, um, has been for you know centuries now believed to be the burial site, and um, uh, so but it's been sealed up. They sealed it up with marble because I think pilgrims were kind of wanting souvenirs and they were afraid that the whole thing would be gone. So in 1555 or maybe a little earlier than that, it got sealed up with with uh, with marble. Maybe in the times of the Crusades, and they decided to crack the thing open and they had it open for 60 hours in 2016. And the guys that went in there and then they cleaned it and they dug through and they got down to wherever they were brushing off, you know, dust and dirt and so forth. And the portion of the picture on the left may be, may be the bed upon which Jesus's body was laid. Just might be, hey, listen, it's cool if it is. It's an archaeological site. It's not to be worshipped. The, the stone on the top, you can see a little bit of a cross there, is actually a piece of marble that was put on there to protect. And the cross was probably etched there. It, th- that is a remnant of the Crusades. And so, um, interesting, though, that there was no bones there. <laughs> Which I think is the coolest thing. I mean, and the reason is because Jesus did go into a tomb somewhere, but he got up and left it under his own power and authority. Pretty, pretty big deal. And so that was just, uh, we we were recognizing that last week. About 600 years later, on June 8th, 632 AD, 600 years later, the prophet for Islam, a guy named Muhammad, died and was buried in a town called Medina. And hundreds of thousands of people every year go to that site 
And they, they're there not celebrating a resurrection, but they're there celebrating a life and a death. And uh, in fact, there's a, there, there's a story that um, you may have heard repeated, but I've heard this story, you know, because I circulate among preachers, and I've heard this story about um, a, a Muslim speaking to a Christian, and, and he was kind of, you know, you know, look, we Muslims, we go to Medina, and at least when we get there, we find a tomb and a coffin full of bones. You Christians go, and there's nothing there at all. <laughs> That's right. That's the whole point, you know. I mean, I don't want to spend eternity in a box. I want to, you know, I want to have eternal life. And so, I mean, that's the point. And so over the next two weeks, we're going to take a look at the religion of Islam through the lens of God's word. And we're going to come through this, I hope, with two different perspectives. Today, we're going to address the perspective of the threat, the physiological threat and spiritual threat that we face. As, and then next week, we're going to talk about the opportunity that's presented there because there's some pretty cool things in there as well. I get, a, I get asked a lot about current events, you know, things that are in the news that maybe were predicted in the scriptures about end times. And it's pretty easy to see if you become a student of, of, of end times prophecies and then you just grab a newspaper or turn on the news. You can't heart, hardly help yourself from seeing it. And so, um, in this series, um, Security Untroubled Time, we're going to consider the threat. Because after all, the department, our own country's Department of Homeland Security, was founded in large part because of the threat of radical Islam against the United States. So, in Genesis 16, which is where we're going to be today, we're going to approach the topic of Islam through, through the life of a guy named Ishmael, the other son of Abraham. And um, now, before Abraham became Abraham, it was Abram, and his wife was Sarai. Um, um, by the way, I'm not disciplined enough to always call him Abram instead of Abraham or Sarai instead of Sarah. God changes their name later. But if I say the wrong name in the right, wrong chronology, would you forgive me for that? Because we know we're, it's the same dude, right? Okay? Okay. So, please don't take me out back and stone me after for being a heretic. Okay. All right. So, anyway, so... Um, uh, before Abraham and his wife Sarah had um, their son Isaac, that God calls the son of pro promise, they had another son whose name was Ishmael. And um, she was Abraham's other son by his concubine named Hagar. And by the way, Abraham had six other sons after Sarai's death by another wife named Keturah. In fact, the sons of Keturah tended to populate what we know today as Saudi Arabia. I don't go down that for, for today. But, and I realize that not all Muslims trace their ethnic lineage back to Ishmael. It's hard to do that because there was so much intermarrying over the years that it would be hard to say, well, this is my family treat, da 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 da, da Ishmael. But, but uh, even though they may not treat, uh, trace their, their ethnic lineage um, back to him, they pretty much um, all trace their spiritual heritage back to Abraham, his father through Ishmael. And they regard Abraham as a prophet. He's mentioned in the Quran. And I really believe that the faith of Islam has, has enabled the Arab people to see a real fulfillment of some of the things that are predicted in the scriptures that we're going to look at today. And uh, so I'd like to, you know, I, I, I suppose like you, if you haven't studied this, you might come up with a question. And I think the world comes up with a question. What, you know, where did this whole earthly hatred of Israel originate? It's there, you know. If you just look at what happens in the United Nations or the news, there is a, you know, what's up with that? You know, it's like, how is it that the Middle East has this little tiny insignificant part of the world has continually nudged us towards global war? I mean, the whole world. This little place that's hardly bigger than Western Washington somehow gets, gets the entire planet spinning up. There's so much going on there. Where did all that begin? What's, what's the agenda um, in that part of the world, and was there any, any of it predicted in, in Scripture? So we're going to get into the Scriptures, and I want to pray, and I'm going to ask the Lord for, for something specific because of where we're going to go today. So let's pray. Lord, as we get into your Word, um, I, I just first want to ask, Lord, that as we get into your Word, that you would settle with, with, upon us, your children, with peace and hope. That you have for us a, a, a Jeremiah 29, 11 position today, a, a future and a hope. That although we're going to talk about some things that maybe would be scary to some, that Lord, you've given us um, not a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Let, let that settle upon us. Let us, Lord, find our heart to a place that's close as we can get to you. 
that our heart somehow loves people and cares for them even in the face of threat. Help my heart be right, Lord, and because um, I can so easily want to get defensive and aggressively against someone who would oppose. So, Lord, um, help us to, to hear your voice. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Genesis 16, starting in verse 1. Now, Sarai, this was her name before she got changed to Sarah. Abram's wife had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. Who, so, Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarah. Then Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife, after Abram had dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan. So here's an example of uh, somebody deciding that God somehow isn't quite getting the job done enough on his own. So God, we're going to help you out here a little bit because obviously you're failing at this, right? We don't say it like that. But that was her perspective. That's what they're thinking. God, you're just not getting a job done. So how about we come up with our own solution? Now, maybe you've heard a phrase out there, um, God helps those who help themselves. Probably made famous by Ben Franklin. Um, I don't think he was the originator of it. But it often incorrectly gets attributed to the Bible. It's not in the Bible. It's not in any translation of the Bible. But um, in fact, the Bible says that God helps those who cannot help themselves. And that's the entire concept of redemption. But anyway, here we find Sarah and Abraham, and they're trying to help God out and um, help God fulfill his promises to them. And so here's the context. To be childless in their culture was, was a terrible, humiliating, degrading thing. It was just heartbreaking. And God had promised this couple that they'd have their own child. I mean, it's been 11 years before this chapter is occurring. So it's a long time ago God made a promise. And they're kind of thinking God is not making it, and they've waited, and they've waited, and they've waited. Now, imagine the conversations that had to be going on just leading up to this before, because I think this is a fairly radical response on Sarah's part. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a minute. But imagine the um, conversation, you know. Hon, you know, I know God promised, but look at me. I'm 75, and he says we're going to have a baby. I'm not going to have any baby. We're not having a baby. Whatever it is, I mean... I'm not 75, but I don't have plan on having any more babies. Right? <laughs> okay, she's like, uh, thank you. Um, I'll take that as a contract and a promise, honey. Anyway, so, love my kids, but I think I'm done in my childbearing. So this, this couple comes up with this plan. And it's, it's easy to see here that Abraham is not exactly the strong pillar, right? I mean, he's, he's pretty passive in some ways. You know, okay, Sarah, you know. You, you, what your idea is for me to have, excuse me, sexual relations with your maid, and you think this is God's will, and you're really okay with this, right? Really? Really? You really want me to do this? Okay, well, somebody's got to suffer. I guess I'll sacrifice for it. Like, okay. I mean, I don't know what the conversation is here, but I'm thinking, okay, he's not being something that he should be, whatever it is. Okay. So now listen, the context in this day, this was legal. Okay, if, if, if a woman was unable to produce a child, she could have a sur surrogate carry her husband's child, and that child could become her legal child. So there was a legal thing going on here. And I always, you know, we come to something like this in the Word of God, I always want to make a distinction. We need to discriminate between what is culturally accepted and legal versus what's biblical, right? Because, I mean, for example, it's, it's, it's legal to divorce your spouse because of irreconcilable differences, but it's not biblical to do that. It's legal to have an abortion, but it's not biblical to do that. So anyway, it, what's, what's important isn't what the courts allow. It isn't what the culture allows, but it's what God wants and allows. So, so we're going to see this whole plan. They ignite this whole plan. It erupts into fire, and it's still burning today. Verse 4, so he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarah said to Abraham, this is your fault. Isn't that what it says? My wrong be upon you. <laughs> I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. Now she's twisting this up. 
obviously. Um, she was in on this. And then she says, the Lord judge between you and me. So now his wife, Sarah, is predictably, you know, jealous and angry and, and she's blaming her husband. And what, watch, watch what he does. Passive Abram. So Abram said to Sarah, indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. So Abram's response is really passive here. Whoa, 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 woman. Back off. You just go ahead and handle this. Which, unfortunately, is the reaction of many men in our culture. You go ahead and handle it. Just go ahead and take care of it. So Sarah demotes Hagar back down from concubine status to slave status, which was legal for her to do. Perfectly legal. Verse 7, now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord, by the way, the word Lord here is the Greek tetragamma or the Hebrew tetragamma, the YHWH without the vowels. I don't know if you know about all that. It's, it's, it's what we get the word Yahweh or Jehovah from. And I'm going to come back to who this, this character is in a minute, this person. It's not just run of the mill here. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. Now, first thing I want us to see here is that this woman, even though she is, is rejected by Sarah and Abraham, she is not rejected by God. I love that. This angel of the Lord comes to comfort her and console her, and, and he's, he's directing her and instructing her. Now, you may have seen this phrase in your reading of the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord. Um, you know, this is the very first mention of this unique person um, in, in the scripture. It's called the angel of the Lord. Who's the angel of the Lord? Well, there's some divided viewpoints about this. Um, some people believe that this angel of the Lord was some sort of a mega angel, maybe Gabriel. By the way, that could be correct. I don't know. I have an opinion, and I'll share my opinion. Um, um, but that is the, what the Muslims say, that this was Gabriel. Okay. Um, other people believe that this angel, this messenger, the word angel means messenger, is, is actually God himself. And uh, you'll find this that there are in a number of places in the scriptures there where an angel or a messenger is, is actually Jehovah, God himself. You'll find it in Genesis 16, Genesis 22, uh, 31. There's other, many places where you'll find that. And, and, uh, and then there are other places where an angel is a distinct person different than God. So a lot of, a lot of commentators believe, and this is my viewpoint, that this is what, what's called a theophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And there are a lot of reasons for that. It has to do with the terminology, the words that are being used here. I'm not going to parse into those today, but I'll point a couple things to you about this. This character says, I will do this. I will do that. I will bless you. I, okay, that's not typical of an angel. That's typical of the Lord. And this character and this person as the angel of the Lord, the disappearances, the, the appearances stop in scripture at the, at, at, by the time Christ arrives. Anyway, Back, I want to back up to verse 8 because it's still up there and I asked for it to be kept up for a couple minutes because there's something else and we're going to go on a short rabbit trail if that's okay. And, and he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid. He's called her, he's being redundant there. He's calling her, calling her Hagar and Sarah's maid, right? He's, it, one is her name, another is her station in life. I just, these are just observations. And by the way, this is just assume that this angel of the Lord um, knows about her. Do you think he really doesn't know where she's been and where she's going? I, why is he asking those questions that he already has the answers to? Maybe it's because he wants her to focus on who she is, her name and her station, for her to focus on where she's been and where she's going. Because she's only thinking about things from her own viewpoint. I mean, it's not in the scripture Okay, but just for a minute, let's just consider. Do you think God cares about Hagar? Obviously. 
He ends up blessing her children. But, but, but do you think he cares? I mean, here's this woman who's a slave. Does she not have the dreams that Sarah has? How come I don't get to have kids? How come I don't get to have a life? How come, how come, how come? And the angel of the Lord shows up and says, hey, I've got this covered. Look at where you've been and where you've been going. You've been a slave. I bring you into this house. I mean, this is not scripture. This is my viewpoint, okay? But it's just as possible true as your viewpoint, which maybe you agree with this one. But I mean, the viewpoint is that the Lord is looking here and saying, I care about you, honey. Look at where you've been. And I'm now giving you children. Maybe, I don't know. I think sometimes we decide to lock ourselves in on our viewpoint and think, you know, if I don't do something to fix this, because God's never going to come sweeping in. But the Lord's eyes were upon this daughter. He cared about her, and he cares about you. And when your circumstances look bleak, he's not abandoned you. He just has not abandoned you. Okay, so this angel of the Lord appears throughout the Old Testament, and then they just kind of stop after the birth of Christ. Now, I want to note something here about, um, in Islam. About Islam. Um, angels in Islam are very, very important. You can take that down now. Muslims believe that there's an angelic hierarchy um, that exists that stretches all the way from, from Allah to mankind. And um, the most, their most important angel, I think, to them would be Gabriel because Gabriel is the one who supposedly gave the revelations to uh, Muhammad in the desert. And they also say that every single person alive has with them two recording angels following you around and recording everything you do that goes into either a good list or a bad list. And on the judgment day, out comes the list and an assessment is made. Okay, that's the belief in the Islamic faith. Okay, so notice the language in verse nine. The angel of the Lord said to her, to her return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Now that's a very key concept in Islam, uh, submission. The word Islam itself means submission. And Muslim means one who surrenders or one who submits. Okay, so the angel says, go submit. And according to Muslim tradition, Hagar does not do that. She doesn't go back. This is where the, their narrative now parts from the scriptures. And they, they, you know, their, their tradition traces Islam back as a religion to Abraham. And in and, and their belief, they say, Abraham is our father. Abraham, our father, submitted to the will of Allah and gave us this religion. There, here's another quote. This is the religion of your father, Abraham. He called you Muslimin, which is a plural form, um, to those who submit to Allah. Now, in their tradition, in Muslim tradition, Hagar did not return to, to Abraham and Sarah and submit. Instead, she took, took off and heads to Saudi Arabia. And, and in their tradition, Abraham follows her to Saudi Arabia, um, and Sarah is left behind by herself, and Abraham and Hagar, um, you know, in, in Saudi Arabia, and eventually Abraham and Ishmael, according to their tradition, built the uh, Kaaba. Kaaba is the big, um, you maybe have seen, if you've ever looked at pictures of Medina, there's uh, where people make a, the Hajj, the, pil the pilgrimage there, there's a big black box building, and it's kind of like their version of a temple, and in the middle of it, there's something else that they consider to be the center of the universe. So they have, um, in their grand mosque in Mecca, and, and so they have the tradition changes. So, okay, verse 10. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. Now, many Arabs trace their lineage back to Ishmael, but that is a very highly disputed point because it's just the records aren't there for it and there was a lot of intermarrying. Here's a few statistics about the Islamic faith. People in the Arab states, um, right now population is 300, about 366 million. That's 22 different countries that kind of cross over into two different continents. Most of those countries are under the banner of a religion called Islam. 24.6% of the world population, that's the, the, the second highest percentage of any religion in the world is Islamic. That's about 1.8 billion, with a B, people. That's one out of every four on the earth. And those numbers are growing as they try to spread their faith worldwide. In 1945 in, in, in England, there was one mosque, one. Today there are 1,700. And many of the buildings in which there are, are mosques now in England were formerly churches. 
So that's painting a picture there. Um, the world distribution of Muslims. I was surprised by this. 20% of them are in the Middle East. 62% of them are in the Asia-Pacific area. Think of like Indonesia and India and those kinds of areas. The, 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 the majority of Muslims are not in the Middle East. Interesting. 16% um, in Sub-Saharan Africa. Europe, 3%. North America, 0.2%, which is about 3.4 million people. So in the United States, as of now, there are about 3,000 mosques. 80% um, of those are new since 9-11. In 1990, there were 30. Today, about 3,000. And uh, a, a new mosque opens up about every week in the United States. Um, and and it's, an Islamic leader has already inaugurated a session of the United States Senate praying in the name of Allah. It's already happening in our country. Saudi Arabia and, and a few other countries pour tens of millions of dollars every year to spread the faith of Islam in the United States. They're investing to them. It's, their, it's a mission field. In fact, there are here are a couple of comments about the strategy to spread um, Islam. It says, why is it that Allah has blessed our country with all of the wealth of the oil of the world, if not for this reason, to spread? One imam, which is a, um, a leader, in, um, in, the, in the Muslim church in Dearborn, Michigan said this, just as you send Christian missionaries to sub-Saharan Africa, we are spreading our faith in America. Okay, so let's consider a little bit more about um, Ishmael. Verse 11, and the angel of the Lord, by the way, I'm gonna skip verse 12 here. We're gonna come back to that in the next point. Um, and the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. The name Ishmael literally means the Lord will hear or the Lord will heed. And Hagar did not, notice that Hagar did not make up this name. This name was assigned and chosen by this angel of the Lord. She wasn't looking in um, a book called A Thousand and One Baby Names, okay? This was given to her. And that, but then she does go on and she names God and the place, does that book even exist anymore? Because the internet right now, right? Lisa and I had to find books. Remember? Yeah. Anybody else here ever look in a baby name book? <laughs> okay. Okay. Then uh, verse 13. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees, literally, El Roy. Okay. Not Roy. Not like Roy Rogers, but Roy. Okay. So Listen. I don't speak Arabic or Hebrew, so I stab at it. You can laugh at me if it makes you feel better. Okay, <laughs> El Roy. Um, <clears throat> for she said, here I also have seen him who sees me. She claims to have seen God. That's another reason why I think the angel of the Lord is not just your ordinary run-of-the-mill angel, if there was such a thing. I don't think there is. Um, here, I also have seen him who sees me. Therefore, the well was called Bir Leheroi. That's not a microbrewery, okay? Observe it between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Now, according to the Quran, uh, Ishmael is a prophet and an apostle, apostle um, and you find that in Surah 19, verse 54. Surah is like a chapter. The Quran has 114 chapters, and they're called surahs. Ishmael is mentioned 12 times in the Quran. Now, um, remember that although we have some sensitivities to the Arab culture because of physical attacks upon our country, I want to remind you that Abraham loved his son. Okay? I mean, he loved his son. It was his son. And in fact, in the very next chapter, which we're not going to go into today, um, um, you find there that God says to Abraham and Sarah, he says, hey, I, I realize what you've done here. But that's not my plan. I'm still going to give you a son. He's going to be miraculously given to you. He's the son of promise. He's going to be Isaac. And, uh, and, and Abram's response to that is, oh, 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 that, that Ishmael, Ishmael might, might live before you, might be the one that you would use to fulfill your promise. And, and God says, you know, here, here he goes again, trying to help God out, and it's not God's plan. God tells Abraham in that passage, he basically says no, but that his promises are going to be fulfilled through Isaac, through his, through, through, uh, through his son Isaac. And the reason for that is, is that is that God's promises always fulfill God's purposes. 
I love the fact that we sang about the promises and we talked about. I was so sensitive. I think the Holy Spirit was working through you, Eric, again, as usual. And, and when we grasp after the promises of God, you're trying to define and make sure it's a promise of God, you're going to find God's purpose somewhere behind it. Because his promises always fulfill his purposes. In fact, there's some interesting things to pick up on if you don't slow down as you read sometimes and see what's really going on. Um, in Genesis 22, God's going to test Abraham, his trust in God, by asking him to send his only son to sacrifice him. Remember that story? And um, here's what he says in, in, in 22 verse 2. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering, offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. Do you catch the fact that God calls Isaac his only son? Did God make a mistake here? The point I want to make is that somehow God does not see Ishmael at least as the son of promise. God's making a distinction. He's considering that Isaac is, is Abraham's only son, which is an absolute point of contention in that part of the world. What do you mean we're not his son? I mean, there's quite a bit of contention there. And, and in fact, in the New Testament, you'll see the Apostle Paul um, clarify some of this for us in the book of Galatians, where he said that Ishmael um, was born according to the flesh, but that Isaac was the result of divine promise. He makes that distinction in, in Galatians 4. So, where this goes, and we won't go down into this today, is Genesis 25. You find out that Ishmael actually has 12 sons. And those sons go on to populate that part of the world. And um, today, claim many, many Arabs claim that in their ancestry. Now, there's a parallel going on there, too, because remember the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, it, it goes from, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, who's known as Israel, and the 12 tribes of Israel. So there's a parallel there. Now, so, so let, now let's consider... Let's talk a little bit about Ishmael's nature, what this guy's like, according to, as, as, as predicted by the angel of the Lord, what he would say about his, his nature. Verse 12, he shall bless that little one. Where to go? Okay. He sh okay, so the angel of the Lord is talking about Ishmael and what kind of a person he is, what his nature is. He says this, he shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Now, three observations there that the angel of the Lord makes about his nature is Ishmael's nature. First one is this. It says, he shall be a wild man. That's, that's a softened translation in the scripture. I've kind of debated on whether to tell you what it literally says, um, but I'm going to tell you what it literally says because in our culture, this is cussing. What the angel of the Lord calls Ishmael is a wild-ass man. I hear the snickering. That's how I respond, too. I mean, I, because, I mean, okay, but here's the thing. And I want to very quickly point out, he's talking about making a reference to the desert onager. Okay? This is a compliment when he called him a wild donkey man, okay? He's complimenting him. The, the, the desert onager is like one of the most respected animals in their culture. It didn't need anybody. It, was, it, it could live off the land. They were autonomous. They were just mobile. They were fiercely independent. They're nearly extinct today. Um, and and, and, and in fact, if you go to Job 39, God himself describes this creature as one of his prized creations, this is a compliment to be called a wild donkey man. Okay? <laughs> you know. So, but if you follow the history of the sons of Ishmael, there is a group of people that are known as the Bedouin. And today they make up about 10% of the population, of the Arabic population in, the, in that area. And um, they, they live in tents. They shun society. They, you know, they live off the land. They have their flocks. They tend to migrate a lot according to the rainfall patterns to take care of their, their animals. They live a very basic life. I think now you might find TV antennas poking out the top. I don't know. But, um, you know. So anyway, so in this, in, in, okay, that's the first one. He's going to be a wild man. And the next phrase, second point that the angel tells us, his hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. 
Now, in case that's not clear to you what that means, I mean, okay, two of the, the foremost scholars of the Old Testament, people that, you know, when I study this kind of stuff, a guy named Kyle and Delich, Germans, they're dead now. They, they, they say this about that, that verse. They say, these words describe the incessant state of feud or war with each other and with their neighbors. Okay, so it's a group of people that are going to be fighting against each other and fighting their neighbors. And I really believe that the religion of Islam has enabled this group of people to fulfill this particular passage, I mean, really, really well. This is very descriptive today of what you see happening in the Middle East. You would think, from a strategic standpoint, if you were Islamic and you wanted to defeat the great Satan, the United States and liberal thinking and all the Christianity and so forth, you'd want to team up. But they are at war with each other as much or more than they are with you. And it's exactly what that scripture describes. And not only is the whole world, you know, you know they're, they're, they're against the whole world, especially the West, but they're fighting each other, the Sunnis and the Shiites, and it's very, very bloody when they mix it up. Which brings us to the question that I want to get to today, which is so politically incorrect. But we're going to ask it anyway. Is Islam a peaceful religion? Now, I know that there are a lot of spin doctors out there that would love to only say peaceful things about it, but they have a vested interest in that viewpoint. Is Islam a peaceful religion? Okay, so if you go back to the origins of their faith, you're going to find a very, very different picture than what the spin doctors would have you believe. So I'm going to give you a thumbnail sketch. I'm not going to give you my opinions. I'm just going to give you some facts here. You can conclude for yourself. Okay, so Muhammad born in A.D. 570 in the city of, of Mecca. At about age 24, he's, um, he marries a very wealthy um, widow who was 15 years his senior, and her name was Khadijah. And she was his first wife of 13. And she had a lot of money, so he didn't need to work. He had all kinds of time on his hands, so he would go on these trips where he'd walk out into the desert. And he might be out there a day, or he might be out there a week, or up to a month. He would just spend time thinking and contemplating. And um, in 610 AD, so this is 600 years, six centuries after Christ, he, he's in a cave on Mount Hera, and he claims that he was visited uh, by the angel Gabriel, who then started to give him revelations. And those revelations continued for some time. But primarily, he said that the angel Gabriel wanted him to recite the name of God. That's what Quran the word Quran means is recite. It's a recital of, you know, you say it, just repeat it back. And um, he wanted him to recite the name of God, but he just sat there and listened to him according to the story, according to their tradition and their scripture. He just listened and didn't respond and didn't respond. And the angel got angrier until finally the angel grabbed him by the throat and nearly killed him. And then he recited, started reciting the name of God. Okay, so that's, that's their story. And... Um, other revelations followed now. So he, he goes back to Mecca, teaching people to turn away from polytheism, multiple gods, and instead to only worship the one true God, Allah. And he warned them that God's judgment is coming, and they pretty much rejected his message, and they persecuted him. So he takes off, he flees Mecca, and he goes to a town that's later known as Medina, and he raises up an army of about 10,000 people, and by the sword... He forced the people of Medina and Mecca to convert to Islam. Now, if you look this up on Wikipedia, which you can do, and you'll see some. I'm going to give you a quote for, today from Wikipedia, because I looked at it a couple of days ago, see, see what Wikipedia says. Um, it says this, The conquest went largely uncontested, and Muhammad seized the city with little bloodshed. That's what Wikipedia, and Wikipedia, of course, is correct, right? Okay, I mean, gee, that's, okay, that's my that's attitude, right? Okay, um, anyway, so I, I just want to point out to you what you would see if you just want to go ahead and read at surface level what's out there. Dig deeper. Find some facts besides the people's opinions. Muhammad personally engaged in 47 battles. Who is so different, you know, to contrast when I consider Muhammad, I'm considering him so I want to contrast him off of Jesus, who, was, who taught love. But anyway, he um, in, personally engaged in 47 battles. He personally oversaw the slaughter of hundreds of people in the Medina market, uh, marketplace. Wikipedia is way off here. 
You know, the, the facts I'm going to give you are not even disputed by the Muslim faith. They're so well documented. One of his earliest biographers, um, a guy named Iban, Iban Ishak, okay, who was a very devout Muslim and historian who lived contemporary. He lived at the time of, of Muhammad. Here's what he writes um, about all of that. The apostle of Allah, which is what they call Muhammad, the apostle of Allah, may Allah bless him, sat with his companions and they were brought to him in small groups between 600 and 700 in number and their heads were struck off. Though some of them will put the figure as high as between 800 and 900. Okay, that's the prophet of Islam, the so-called religion of peace. Um, what is it? Wikipedia says very little bloodshed. I'd say those 600 or 900 considered there was some bloodshed. There had to be more. Muhammad's dying words, this is not contested. He said a lot of things on his deathbed, but these are among them. Let a curse be upon the Jews and the Christians and beware there should be no two-faced in Arabia. Sounds so different than, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Into your hands I commend my spirit. It's not without good cause that Islam calls Muhammad the prophet of the sword. So what are their holy books and what do they teach? Is the Quran a peaceful book? Okay, Quran means recital. It's their holy book. They also not only have the Quran, but they have what's called the Hadith, which is, uh, Hadith means traditions. People would collect these anecdotes about Muhammad, and the, I, the concept is that not, okay, the, the, the Quran is, is primary, but secondary and followed would be the, the traditions, the sayings, the behaviors of Muhammad. We will emulate him. It's not so much different than us, with the concept that, you know, here's the life of Christ. We should try to be like him, right? Okay, so that's the concept. Christ is a different person altogether, right? So it's a different person to follow. But anyway, so the hadith is, is that. And, um, and, and some, in the Sunni slice, which is about 90%, you have about, Sunni is about 90%, and, and Shiite is about 10%, rough, roughly, and those two war against each other. And they're distant, they're, they're I don't want to spend much time on the difference between the two, but they basically had a parting of the ways of who should succeed Muhammad at the time. Um, one thought it should be the blood, and so much. I mean, it's just, there, was just this, there were big arguments about it, and it actually reconverges at a certain point, but they haven't forgot that, and they're still warring with each other about it all these centuries later. I'm not trying to justify them, I'm just telling you. So, so, so this 90% group, some of them believe that the Hadith not only should use Muhammad as a model, but some of his other close associates, which in our translation would be, well, okay, if we were going to do the same thing, we'd go, well, Peter pulled out his sword and cut a guy's ear off when Jesus was being portrayed in the garden, so we ought to carry a sword just in case we have to cut somebody's ear off, and that the Lord would... Okay, you see my point. Okay, the hadith is following the traditions and the sayings and the behavior of, of Muhammad, and they're very highly. Now, there are a couple of other um, concepts that are different that I'll point out to you. One is called abrogation. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, but the word abrogate means to repeal or to annul. We're going to talk about that a little more next week. But the concept is this, that some verses in the Quran they have abrogation. They are repealed or annulled by another verse. And there's a complicated series of how you go about deciding which verses thou now become an, um, annulled. Like Allah must have changed his mind or he was wrong or something. So you follow me where this is going? You really can't trust the word because, okay. And then the topic of lying. Okay, it's not allowed in in Islamic, in, 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 in Islamic faith, except in certain circumstances, it's acceptable and even encouraged. Okay? Now, they have something that's called the takiyah, which is, I'm not saying it right, takiyah, it's a couple of extra Ys in there or something, but the word literally means prevention. And the concept is this. If you are in a circumstance and telling the truth will damage the faith or could injure you, you're allowed or encouraged to lie. Okay? Um, you find that in the Quran, Surah 3, verse 28, Surah 16, verse 106. You can look it up yourself if you want. I mean, I've spent some time in there because I thought, you know, I should, if I'm going to talk about this, I should read it. So over the last few years, I've kind of read it a few times. Not, not the whole thing, but read into it. So let's translate that into how do you, when are you allowed to lie? 
Oh, here's an example. To keep the peace in your family, you can lie to your wife. Not a good idea, don't do it. <laughs> to keep peace in society, you can lie to, in your community to other Muslims. Muhammad himself ordered people to lie in some circumstances. There's one point where he's saying, um, he's basically planning, I have an adversary, I need him killed. But if we tell them what we're going to do, they'll fight back. We'll go ahead and lie to them and then kill them. Okay, so he's justifying the, you know, the, the end justifies the means. Okay. And to protect Islam, you are allowed to lie to your enemies. Here's an example um, about oaths. This is in, um, this is Hadith 427. You, you can't find this anyway, but I'll read it to you. You could actually put these, this uh, location up on the internet and it'll come up. Um, by Allah and Allah willing, if I take an oath and later find something else that is better than that, then I do what is better and expiate my oath. Expiate means you just cancel it off and you make up for it somehow. In other words, you make an oath and now you got a better deal. I got a bigger number on another line. I'm just, even though I made a promise, too bad. I'm doing this now. It's okay. A couple more things about Islam. In Islam, there's no redeemer. There's no mediator. There is no guarantee of salvation. In the Quran, one verse out of every 7.9, let's call it eight, one out of every eight verses threatens or mentions hell in the Quran. A lot of talk about hell. You compare the Old Testament. How many do you think are in the Old Testament? Well, in the Old Testament, it's one verse in every 722 mentions hell. In the New Testament, it's one in every 120. It's like the Quran is really, there's the maypole we keep swinging around. Hell, 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 hell. It's terrible. Sorry, I told you I wasn't going to give you opinions. I was going to give you facts. One slipped out. Okay, so... So also in the Quran are verses that they call war verses. 109 verses. Uh, um, uh, so there's one out of every 55 is called a war verse. The most famous war verse, the verse of the sword, you might have heard it. It's called the Ayat Saif. Okay, it's Surah 9, verse 5. When the forbidden months are past, that's Ramadan. When the forbidden months are past, then fight and slay the pagans wherever you find them and seize them, beleaguer them, and lie in wait for them in every stratagem of war. Now, I realize that there are many peace-loving and moderate Muslims. It's because they're moderate and that they're liberal in their faith. If, if they're fundamental, if they really believe what their faith teaches, it's a different deal. And the roots of Islam are certainly not peaceful. Muslims will cite that very first, the, the Ayat al-Sayif, um, when it, it somehow justifies them when they decide a, a, to drive a vehicle into a crowd of pedestrians and bicyclists like they did last, was it November, um, in New York and killed 22 people? Or, or when they explode a bomb in a London subway, which they did last August, and killed, I don't know, 22 injured or something like that. When they, when they put off a suicide bomber, lets a bomb go just outside an Ariana Grande concert last summer, killed 22 people. They, they quote the Ayat al-Sayif. According to Islam, the entire world is divided up into two groups of people. Now you try to figure out which group you're in, Okay. Two groups of people. The first group is called the Dar al-Islam, the house of Islam, the house of those submitted to Islam. The second group is called the Dar al-Harb, house of war. You're in one of those two groups. The last description, back to the angel of God, <laughs> is this prediction made of Israel. It says, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Literally, it says he shall dwell against his brethren. Now, um, there are two ways that, that uh, commentators would try to explain that verse. Some believe that it literally means he will dwell to the east of his brethren. And it could mean that. Um, you know, the, that's where the, a lot of the Ishmaelites settled at the time, uh, to the east of the nation of Israel. It can also mean that it can also be translated in the face of. So, 
it doesn't really matter where you live, you would find that Arabic, the Arab-speaking, the Muslim people around the world are pretty much all living in the face, in the grill of, if you, so to speak, of Israel. I mean, there's a very, very strong dislike, I'd say is mildly putting it for the Jewish nation. I'm going to give you some, some okay, so an author named Brigitte Gabriel, who was a woman who was uh, born in Lebanon and raised in a Muslim community. Here's something that she, was, she heard regularly growing up. I'm reading a quote. The only time we'll have peace in the Middle East is to kill all the Jews and throw them into the sea. Throughout Lebanon and elsewhere in Islamic countries, children are learning to hate. They're, 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 they're grow, they grow up and they're taught songs in school. And one translation of a song that's sung in basically in primary school, like a nursery rhyme. The words say, Arabs are beloved, Jews are dogs, Jews, your blood is kosher to us. We got Mary had a little lamb. Just consider that. I mean, imagine planting that into the hearts and the minds of little children. Innocent little kids. And, and teaching it as a nursery rhyme. The government of Saudi Arabia supplies curricula to people um, all throughout the Middle East. And in their books, you know, supplied by Saudi Arabia, um, they're basically teaching children to become suicide bombers. Part of an eighth grade curriculum, here's a, a lift this out. Jews and Christians are apes and pigs. Allah has cursed them. Now, by now you're probably thinking, okay, I, I, have you made your point, Terry? You're kind of, also, by the way, that's not very balanced. You're pretty much just jamming over onto the extreme side of the meter. In fact, you've pegged the meter. You've got to get more reasonable, Terry, because not everybody in Islam thinks this way. Get a little more balanced. Okay. Let's just say... Um, I'm only giving you the extreme version. Let's just, I don't, I don't think I am. I've just given you some facts. Um, these are just plain and historical. Anybody can look these up. This is not something I, uh, work, what's the worst I can find? This is just what you can find if you look. But let's just say that I've only given you the most extreme. Only a few people in the, in the faith, in the Islamic faith, believe this way. So then I have a question. Out of the entire, of, out of Islam worldwide, and let's just say it's all peace-loving, but a very sm small group. What would you guess is the percentage that's extremist and hateful? I mean, you'll have to guess because there's not really any way to know. And a lot of people have tried to guess. The same woman, Brigitte Gabrielle, who grew up there, um, and her story is that um, in a Christian setting, they were being attacked by the Muslims. Their house was bombed at one point. They lived in the basement of the house for over two years in a, like a 10 by 12 room and constantly, I mean, there's a lot, lot going on there, but her viewpoint is that she says that 15 to 25% of world Muslims are plotting to attack the West. Now, that's a lot because that number comes out between 270 and 450 million people. That's a lot. Okay, maybe that's too many. I don't know, maybe just 10%. 10%, that would, be, that would mean there's only 180 million radicals. Or you could go with the thinking or what Hosni Mubarak, the former uh, president of Egypt, said, no, 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 the number of radicals is only 1%. Okay. That's just 18 million people who believe that the United States is the great Satan and needs to be destroyed at all costs. 18 million. Here's something, um, I, I, I don't want to be inflammatory, but, this is, but this is, I'm just going to share this with you. A 2011 Pew survey. Pew is a, is a, is a company that does surveys in the United States. So they're very respected and, and trusted. They surveyed U.S. Muslims about different, their opinions about different things. And one of the things they, they, they surveyed them about was this statement about this topic. Suicide bombings and other forms of violence in the name of Islam. This is, a, this is a survey on that topic in the United States of Muslims. 7% said suicide bombings are sometimes justified. 7% of the, the Muslims in America say that. That number pencils out to 230,000 Muslims in the United States say that it's sometimes justified. 1%, which is only 33,000, say suicide bombings are often justified. Living in the United States today. 
Consider what just 20 people did on 9-11. 20. So, I mean, the, the obvious question to me is how can a person just think this way? Because, you know, there is in Muslim theology, a, there, there must be. How do, how do people think that? There, there, there's got to be something. Well, I want to answer that and tell you that there is in Muslim theology a, a reason that that can happen, why, why suicide bombings can happen and why attacks can happen. There's a theological reason. You want to know the reason? Okay, I'm going to tell you next week. <laughs> I just did that. Let's just open one present. It's Christmas Eve. <laughs> My daughter's not here. She always goes for it. Anyway, um, we'll talk about that next week. We'll talk about the doctrine called abrogation. And here's the thing. You will never understand the mind of, of an Islamic person if you do not understand the concept of abrogation. We'll talk about that next week. But I want our clothes. I want to shift here a little bit because that's kind of been scary and I don't mean to scare you. Um, and I waited until the end of this whole series on security to get here because I wanted you to be full of faith when we got here. And I really believe, rather than seeing the threat, that there is also another side to this, and that's the opportunity side. There really, truly, this is not me trying to pump you up. I believe this stuff, okay? There really is an opportunity. And in fact, that's how God views it. And it hasn't changed in a couple thousand years. Because there was a terrorist walking along at the time of Jesus pursuing and chasing down and killing Christians. We're going to talk about that guy. His name was Paul. And we revere Paul. There was something in God's heart about Paul. I want to be careful that my heart stays right. Because we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities, powers in high places. And so our hearts need to be right on this topic. And we're, we're going to get to that some more next week. We're going to talk about the opportunity. There was a, there was a Muslim from Kuwait whose name was Ibrahim, which is a, a you know, transliteration of Abraham, um, a very devout Muslim, and very, very wealthy, made his money in TV production. He made a lot of pilgrimages to Mecca. It's called the Hajj. Once in their life, they're supposed to make a pilgrimage. That's a requirement, and uh, it's a sacred pilgrimage. And he, he was very persistent and pursued um, you know, spiritual things. He studied the Quran. And he said, his statement is that the more he made pilgrimages... And the more he studied the Quran, the less peace he had. And he had no peace in his life. In fact, he got to a point where he actually attempted suicide several times. And um, he's traveling at one point in England, and he's in a hotel because it's over Ramadan, so he's staying in his hotel room, and he, and he can't sleep. And he finds a Gideon's Bible in the hotel room. God bless him, Right? And he's, he's reading, um, and he's reading in Psalm 4. He can't sleep, and he comes to Psalm 4. Let me re let's read Psalm 4, the whole thing. Now, this is a song, by the way. My Bible says, for the stringed instrument, but it's got lyrics to it. This is you know, it's a song. Hear me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You've relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me. And hear my prayer. Okay, here's this Islamic guy picking up the scriptures and reading this. <laughs> Do you think the Holy Spirit was speaking to him? Let's keep going. How long, O oh you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? And then it says Selah. By the way, that means rest. And musically, if you're a musician, you know what a rest is. I think that this is in the scriptures not just because it was a song, but the Holy Spirit left the notation there because there's times when you're supposed to just rest upon what you've heard and let it get in. You can do it later. But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. Here's this guy who's been pursuing spiritual righteousness in whatever way he knew how. The Lord will hear when I call to him. The guy's praying, praying for that. Be angry and do not sin. That's what the scripture says. It's actually correctly, more correctly uh, translated. It says, tremble with fear or anger, but don't sin. Mediate, mediate within your heart on your bed and be still. Rest. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. I will both lie down in peace and sleep for you alone, O Lord, 
make me dwell in safety. He looks up, reads this, looks up and says, if you're the God of this book, would you please help me sleep? And his testimony is he slept like a baby. And he was in London on business and he encountered multiple Christians in the week that followed and he was resistant to them and their message. But by the end of that week, the Holy Spirit got through and unlocked something. And this man opened his heart to the Lord, received Christ. And you might guess his family absolutely rejected him. Imagine the fallout later that happened when he decided to marry a Christian woman. They disowned him. Years later, he finally gets a phone call from his father. And his father said, I know that your God is real because for these past 10 years, all of our plans to harm you have failed. There are a lot of conversions happening in these countries. It's, and it's part of the reason is because their, their, their faith offers them no hope, no, 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 no forgiveness, no answers. And many of them are turning to faith in Christ. We're going to talk about that opportunity next week and as we consider this terrorist that walked in the times of Jesus. So please keep your heart open as you consider the things that we've talked about today. Please keep your heart soft before the king, not against people, not, but soft before the king. So the question before we pray, we, we ask is, well, how, how am I supposed to deal with all this scary stuff, Terry? Well, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. A sound mind. That means rational thinking. It means be reasonable, not irrational. Power and love and a sound mind. And this in 1 John 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is God. That point here is not talking about his physical arrival. This is talking about God's divinity arriving on the earth through Jesus Christ. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because this, catch this, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Let's pray. God, um, I want to thank you for the message of the gospel, that you have revealed yourself so clearly and so plainly.